Amen. Thank you, worship team. Uh, praise the Lord for what we witnessed this morning and what we participated in already this morning. Before we begin the message, I just want to uh, share with you a word from uh, the staff and the board of our church. Uh, as many of you know, we've been the board has been working through uh, the recommendations that came from the task force that many of you spoke into through surveys and so on. And uh, we, are, uh, we really appreciate the prayerful support. And I want you to know that the board has uh, really got a lot of unity. There's a, a lot of a, a prayerful spirit. There's a sense of direction that God is giving to us. And we actually are, are choosing a Sunday in June when we will bring that front row and center. I don't know what Sunday it'll be yet, but we'll let you know as soon as possible. And uh, what we're going to do in the, both the first and the second service is, is just have us share where God has us at this point in terms of future direction as a church, what God has been showing the board and uh, the sense that we have and pray together about that. So, so keep praying and uh, we will let you know um, perhaps even next week what Sunday in June that hopefully you can mark on your calendar and be part of that. Would you take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark? Mark chapter 10. And will you stand with me as we listen to God's word? Mark chapter 10, verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, that is the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus, your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. May God bless his word. You may be seated. The story of the healing of blind Bartimaeus is the last healing story in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, next week we will open our Bibles to chapter 11, verse 1. And as you can see, it is the triumphal entry, the entrance into Jerusalem, and it ushers in to the history, the, the entire Passion Week of Jesus, the last days of Jesus, and we will be on that, on that portion of Mark until the end of August when we finish the Gospel of Mark. This healing that we read of today takes place in Jericho, and uh, Jericho, what a, what a history city, old Jericho. Joshua fit the battles of Jericho. Surely as Jesus walked in and out of Jericho, much came to his mind. Perhaps he thought about as he looked down from heaven how he stopped the waters of the Jordan River from flowing just long enough so that his people could pass by on dry ground. And then the very first city that they took was Jericho. As they marched around it seven times on that seventh day, and then they all shouted, and the, tr the walls came, came tumbling down. 
Jesus would have walked by the old walls on the outer part of Jericho as he entered and exited the city. He would have thought maybe about his ancestor, Rahab, the prostitute, who, because of God's favor, was able to hide some spies and in exchange save some of the people from her life, her family, and her descendant indeed came to be the Messiah. As Jesus and the twelve entered the old part of the city, they passed by the old walls that were rebuilt after Joshua had seen them crumble. What memories must have filled his mind? Just west of, of Jericho was the wilderness area where just a couple years earlier, Jesus spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness, being tempted by the enemy. Mark is very careful to mention the location, and Jericho is mentioned in verse 46, because it had both geographical and spiritual significance. Geographically, it was located at the north end of the Dead Sea, in the middle of a barren wilderness. At the time, it was called the City of Palms, and that's because it was like an oasis in the desert. It was uh, wonderful fresh water springs, good crops, for land for good crops, luscious fruit trees. Herod the king had built a fortress in Jericho as a place to retreat to on occasion. The historian Josephus wrote that when there was snow in Jerusalem 14 miles away, Jericho could be guaranteed sunny and warm. Jericho, a thousand feet below sea level, and then Jerusalem just 14 miles southwest, at, a, at an altitude of 2,500 feet above sea level. So Jericho was that last city before the incline up toward Jerusalem. Jesus and the Twelve were passing through on that final upward journey. But it is also a spiritually significant place for ministry as well. For we see in this place that blind Bartimaeus, Matthew's Gospel tells us that there was two blind men but blind Bartimaeus here is healed. Luke tells us that also of another man, a little wee man that climbed a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, Zacchaeus, who also was healed in Jericho. Both these men are giants spiritually, for both of them exemplify what it means to have faith. They leave everything to follow Jesus, quite a contrast to the rich young ruler that we just read about a couple of weeks ago that wasn't willing to leave anything to follow Jesus. And so we see in this passage of Scripture an incredible story of uh, an incredible man. This morning we heard a story of grace that came from Marcy's lips. We heard about her story, about God's grace in her life, and witnessed her baptism. This coming month, I want you to know, we're going to witness several more baptisms and testimonies. And uh, we look forward to every story that is giving the, the glory to God, a diamond that is in the rough, that is shining, the glory of Jesus. It's important that we think about how are we supposed to receive these stories, these testimonies? What is it that we're supposed to do with them? How is it that the Lord wants to write these stories somehow as an overlay on our story? What are we supposed to hear? Frederick Buechner has said, his assumption is that the story of any one of us is in some measure the story of us all. What he's referring to, of course, is that sense that we get when we hear someone's story and we hear some aspect of it that resonates with something deep within us. We're all more alike than we are different, you see. 
And so when we hear a testimony or a story, there are, there are common themes like rivers down deep in our hearts that flow. And these common themes just somehow gush forth in a testimony and they somehow water our souls as well. Somehow together we become this symphony of praise to God because we all are singing in harmony on the same notes, on the same themes. And somehow God gets the glory as we do it right. Even the evil and the bad choices and the things that we'd rather forget become part of the story, part of the symphony. They don't sound dissonant when they're put in the form of a testimony that gives glory to God. Right, brothers and sisters? Isn't it true? And so somehow we have to listen to testimony with new ears. Perhaps there's no time that this happens more when than at a funeral when we hear a eulogy. And this, the person that is asked to give a eulogy is somehow given this impossible task of standing in the pulpit and in a, in a few minutes summarizing an entire life. What an incredible task. And as we hear a eulogy, we hear the story, we hear again somehow a testimony, and we hear all these common themes. We hear all this stuff that somehow grabs hold of us. It resonates with us. Because we can identify with some of that stuff, what's told and what's not told. There's an author that, a British author by the name of Christopher Booker, and in 2004 he wrote a landmark book called Seven Basic Plots. And in this book he describes what anthropologists and historians had known for a long time, but he nails it down and he says that, that all, all story... All story, testimony, legend, myth, epics, anything can be all labeled under seven themes or plots. So there's nothing new under the sun. For example, there's the overcoming the monster story. This is the kind of idea of Jack and the Beanstalk, High Noon, James Bond series are doing this kind of thing. David and Goliath in the scripture is the overcoming the monster plot. A second one is the rags to riches Cinderella story. Again, uh, Hollywood abounds. There's the, uh, there's the ugly duckling. There's my fair lady. There's, there's Superman and, and so on. Aladdin and the lamp. Joseph in the Bible is an example of a rags to riches story. There's the quest, the Moby Dick stories, the, the pilgrim's progress. In the Bible, there's the story of the Exodus. What a quest that is for the promised land. And then there's the voyage and return, which is like the quest, except there's a homecoming at the end of it. There's the stories such as, um, such as the parable of the prodigal son. What a homecoming that is. There's Peter Pan. There's Alice in Wonderland and so on. The incarnation of Christ in itself is a coming home as he has ascended. Then there's comedies and tragedies, two more types of plots and we see Romeo and Juliet and Bonnie and Clyde and Samson in the Bible is a, a classic tragedy if you look at it from that point of view. And finally there's the rebirth stories, the plot that just brings about new life. The Christian message itself is that, the conversion of the Apostle Paul, Sleeping Beauty, Snow White, Beauty and the Beast, Lazarus raised from the dead, new birth. And so what am I saying? Well, I'm saying is that, that we have seven basic plots that cover any story you could name. You see, we have, we have a lot, we're a lot more alike than we are different. 
And so when we hear a story or a testimony, something has to resonate within us because we're all part of that. There's only so much that, that, that exists. And so today, even as we open up our Bibles to blind Bartimaeus and we hear him speak of his experience, it should resonate something with ours as well. And I want to ask the Lord that he would bless this message that, that in, in this text I see a journey in and a journey out for every one of us as well. I see a journey down and I see a journey up for every one of us as well. And I think that God wants to teach us something about that through Bartimaeus. But we've already read in Scripture about how many people got rebuked for trying to get closer to Jesus. Children were prime candidates. Parents were bringing children and people were rebuking them. He doesn't have time for that. Here we see a blind beggar who is rebuked for trying to get the attention of Jesus. Jesus, however, surprises all of his followers. He's not going to just talk the talk. He's going to walk the walk. And so he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. And so what does he do? He's walking on the road, and he stops, and he serves the needs of a blind beggar. We need to ponder as we look at this text, what kind of a life blind Bartimaeus had? What kind of a life did he have? In ancient Palestine, they did not have the social net that we have in Canada today that could be careful to care for the infirmities of people. If you did not have a family, you were resigned to the, to the calling and occupation of, of begging. And almsgiving was so common in that culture as you would see in many cultures today. Any team that goes out from our church as a mission team to a developing nation on earth will see many beggars, many handicapped, many infirmities sitting on the streets, and they live by that. It's not surprising to me that there might be two of them and that only one is mentioned, you needed to have some numbers to, to be guaranteed some safety in numbers, strength in numbers. I remember in Bolivia various times in the, cities, in the streets of Cochabamba, you would see blind men walking, uh, and they would have their shoulder on the, the next man. And they would go through busy streets and construction zones, and they would go through that and, and go to where they were going. I wonder if the reason that Mark... And Luke speak only of one is because he was more vocal. But some have suggested that the reason that Mark speaks only of one and in fact names the one is because this is the one that got up and followed Jesus into Jerusalem after he was healed. And it could be that as Mark is telling the story and he's writing his gospel, he's wanting the church at the time, years after Jesus' ascension, he's wanting them to know, and do you know who one of those blind men was? It was our brother Bartimaeus, now respected leader in the church. It could be that that was why he gets mentioned and others do not. And so, in this passage of Scripture, let's take a look at what kind of a life Bartimaeus might have led? Maybe I'm the only one that does this. I'm not sure, but I want to say to you that I've pondered it several times and I've come to my conclusion that if I had to lose one of my five senses between, seeing, or between tasting, touching, smelling, hearing, and sight, sight would be the last one that I'd want to lose. The last thing I'd want to be is blind. A blind person experiences something that a seeing person cannot begin to understand. I thought about Simon Garfunkel's song, Sounds of Silence. 
Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Indeed, darkness must have been Bartimaeus' old friend. Think about it. Darkness. Absolute darkness. Every day, every night. I'm sure that this man experienced the kind of personal darkness that no one else could fully understand. There's no darkness like personal darkness. There's no darkness like the darkness that you sit in and everybody else is passing you by and no one slows down to listen to your story and understand why is it dark for you. There's no darkness like that. The irony of the story is that Bartimaeus' name means worthy of honor and yet everybody's walking by him like roadside refuse. This man who is worthy of honor. In chapter 10, verse 46, we're introduced to Bartimaeus. He's by the side of the road. He likely had some other place at night to lay his head, as many beggars did. But for a beggar who is blind, where he is right now in this text is exactly where he needs to be, especially during the time of Passover. When we read that there was a large crowd along with Jesus heading on up to Jerusalem, and you had to pass through Jericho. And that's where you started the incline. The Bible says that he was passing along, Jesus was passing along with a large crowd. And you probably had to be kind of aggressive to stay in that crowd and stay on the road. And anybody that was begging beside the road, especially blind beggars that wouldn't see you, was just an annoyance, if anything. What does it, what does it do to someone's view of self year after year to be treated that way? Many of us have had our experiences of personal darkness where we feel very much like life and the crowd passes us by day by day. You feel even maybe perhaps coming to church, that can be your experience. You could be very lonely in this crowd this morning. We're trying to work against that. You can feel lonely anywhere. And whether it's real or only perceived, you feel on the outside of the crowd. You feel like everybody else belongs and you don't. You feel like an outsider. There's all kinds of things that can make you feel that way. Sometimes secret sin can make us feel like outsiders because we carry shame. Sometimes having been sinned against can make us feel that way. Personal insecurities, fears can lead you to a side-of-the-road experience where you feel like you don't belong. I wonder what Bartimaeus had in his life. I wonder who Bartimaeus had in his life before he met Jesus. Again, quoting Beekner, he writes, We search on our journeys for three things. A self to be, other selves to love, and work to do. As I read that, I thought, wow, that, that speaks to the three essential aspects of being human. Number one, a self to be. We were created in the image of God. We were created to be reflections of God. I wonder what Bartimaeus thought about himself. Secondly, this idea of, of other selves to love, a sense of belonging to others. I wonder who was in Bartimaeus's life that gave him a sense of belonging. And then this work to do, this, this scripture again, it, not only does God say in Genesis that we were created in his image, not only does it say it's not good for men to be alone, but it says that we were created for the purpose of work. 
of doing the things that God's called us to do. Be fruitful, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. I wonder what Bartimaeus felt about his contribution to society, sitting by the side of a road begging. He has come to be used to living off of the pity of others. And when I say living off of the pity of others, I am talking about the kind that does not sort of give you something and somehow have compassion. I'm talking about the kind of pity that throws you a coin, but along with it throws you the stare, the glance. Now he's blind, so he doesn't see what they're looking like. But this is the kind of charity that is not a building up, affirming experience, but rather a condescending glance of scorn or shame at these blind beggars on the side of the road. Why was that? Well, it's because even at the time of Jesus, though we have books like Job in the Old Testament and other scriptures that teach contrary, there was still this belief in the causal effect between sin and sickness. And so there was this theological justification in the minds of many people that had been taught by the rabbis that that man is sitting there on the side of the road and blind because of sin in his life. Try living under that cloak for a while. That was the default thought. We see that in John 9. Remember the story in John 9? Jesus and the disciples are in Jerusalem and they're walking through the temple courts and they find a blind man and default question. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? You hear that before he was born, some rabbis taught that, that a an infant could sin within the womb. Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? How do you live with that? You see, there was this theological justification that so many people had for treating this man like dirt. There was a theological log in the eye of everyone who passed him by, including Bartimaeus himself. It was kind of like caste system, bad karma, the will of Allah stuff. It doesn't have place in the Christian gospel. Bartimaeus lived under the cloak of condemnation for a condition that was not his directly responsibility. At least we have no indication it was. It's very sad to find people today that live under the cloak of condemnation and shame and guilt, sometimes for no fault of their own. I'm thinking of people that have faced child abuse, people that have faced being beaten, somehow coming out of that experience feeling like you have something to blame for in it. That kind of renewed mind takes many, many years. Even you can be told time and time again it wasn't your fault. It takes such a renewing of the mind in Scripture in telling you, God, this is what God thinks of you. Don't listen to what other voices say. The old ideas of self-loathing shame can eat away like a cancer. And you know something? Some people, the journey's too hard. For some people, it's too hard to throw off the cloak of shame. The journey downward and the journey inward is such a hard journey to take. Sometimes people opt for living in their personal darkness at the side of the road and off of the pity of others just to avoid having to look at what is under the cloak of shame. 
You see, it's only in the mercy of God that any of us ever take off the cloak and look within, take the journey. Because you see, if you do so, and you have Bartimaeus' experience, you'll find that the cloak you take off is replaced by the banner of God's love. Unconditional love. Kind of love that you don't know anything like about it in earth. There's no comparison on earth because this love is God's love. Leads to our second part of the sermon this morning. The journey inward and downward leads to the bottom where we have to arrive somehow, somewhere. And then the journey outward and upward can take place. What did it look like for Bartimaeus? Well, the first part of the journey has to begin in, in the living in the hope of a Savior. If you do not somehow come to a place of living in the hope of a Savior, then you don't ever start the outward and upward journey. Bartimaeus is living in darkness by the side of the road off the pity of others and under the cloak of condemnation. But then one day, one glorious day, one glorious day, Jesus decides to walk on the road that goes by his house, where he lives, where he puts his cloak. And so on that road, when he hears that he's close, Bartimaeus cries out. Do you know that this is the only time that the word, phrase, son of David is used in all the gospel of Mark? And this is a messianic term. This is used in the Old Testament to, to prophesy of the coming of the anointed Messiah, the Christ. And the only one that uses it. Jesus had been teaching the disciples time and time again, this is who he is. But the only one that uses it is a blind beggar on the side of the road. I don't know how he came to that understanding, but he came to it. And he saw that this man is his only hope. He's also one of the few that called Jesus by his first name. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And he shouts it at the top of his lungs. Do you see what's happening? He, he, Jesus, the historical Christ, uh, Savior, and, and the Messiah Christos, the Christ, he... He brings them together. He knows that the historical Jesus and the eternal Christ belong in the same person, in the same body, in the same hope. And he's the only hope. And he just cries out and he says, have mercy on me. Because if you pass by my ten yards or so on this road, I'm, I'm done. The only time that you, any of us, the only time that you and I are going to come out of our own personal darkness. The only time we will have the courage to leave our comfortable spot at the side of the road, the only time that we'll be able to pry ourselves loose from the, the terrible obsession of living off of the pity of others, the only time that we will have the courage to throw off, the faith to throw off the cloak of shame, the only time that you will do that, friends, is when you stand aware of the need for mercy and the one who's ready to give it to you and find hope in Jesus Christ. That there's another life for you. There's a transformed life for you. You don't have to live on that low grade that you've been living on. That's when we throw it aside. There's good news here. 
So for Bartimaeus, the only one that could do this was Jesus, and he cried out at the top of his lungs. But you see, hope has to have a voice. Hope has to have a voice. It also has to have legs as well and feet. Hope has to have that because, you see, Bartimaeus sitting by the side of the road, it was not good enough for him to say, well, I hope Jesus takes note of me. There was a crowd on that road. Jesus would not have noticed him. And so faith, you see, has a voice. Unbelief does not. Faith calls out to God. Unbelief does not. Bartimaeus calls out. He doesn't just call out. He calls out so loud that his voice can be heard decibels above the whole crowd that is walking by. He has to determine that this is his only chance. And he has to shout above the clamor of the crowd. How desperate are you How much are you convinced that Jesus is your only hope? How much rebuke are you willing to take for the sake of getting the attention of Jesus? The wonder of it all is that everyone else was, well, everyone else was condemning Bartimaeus. Well, everyone else was saying that he was dirt. Well, everyone else was saying he was worthless. He was not a real man. He'd never amount to anything. Well, everyone else was telling him to shut up. In verse 49, it says, Jesus stopped. That is one of the best parts of this whole passage, the the words, Jesus stopped. Now, this is amazing. You know, we've been talking about it. Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. He has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He is a man on a mission. The disciples are saying, don't go to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you there. He is saying, this is why I've come. But on his way to Jerusalem, on his mission, he stops. Where does he stop? He stops right ahead of Bartimaeus. Powerful. He stops right ahead of Bartimaeus. And he says, call him. The very fact that it says, just call him, tells me that Bartimaeus must have been louder than everybody else because he doesn't say, you know, that guy that's over there. No, he, he just says, call him. The guy that's making an annoyance of himself, call the one that's shouting for me and wants me more than all you do. Call him. He's the one I want to talk to. He's the one I want to really get to know. The one that sees his need for mercy, and knows I'm his only hope. Bring that man to me. And so the cloak that Bartimaeus owned would have been thrown aside, it says, whether it was on his shoulders or on the ground in front of him to receive the coins, it didn't matter. His only earthly possession was thrown aside. In Jericho, likely it was always warm enough to not need it on your shoulders during the day. But he throws it aside and he, and he goes to Jesus. Compare that with the rich young ruler who was asked to give away all he had to follow Jesus and could not. He did not see his need like Bartimaeus saw his need. Riches and health and other good things can cause a blindness that is so more, much more debilitating than the blindness that Bartimaeus had. It's one of the lessons that Jesus is trying to convey to his disciples, even in this text. We we saw it in in Mark chapter 8. Remember the story in Mark chapter 8 where just before it, Jesus heals a deaf man. 
And then just after it, he heals another blind man. And in the middle of it, in chapter 8, in verse 17, Jesus has his disciples alone. He says, are your hearts so hardened? Do you have ears, but you can't hear? Do you have eyes, but you cannot see? He's talking about himself being the Messiah, and they're not getting it. Spiritual deafness and blindness is worse than physical. And so again, here on the eve of the incline up toward Jerusalem... Palm Sunday, he is earnestly wanting his disciples to have the faith of this blind beggar, to have the hope of this blind beggar, to have the cry for mercy that this blind beggar had. You see, it all comes down to mercy and understanding our need for it. Again, Beekner writes this, when it comes to putting broken lives back together, the human best tends to be at odds with the holy best. To do for yourself the best that you have it in you to do, to grit your teeth and clench your fists in order to survive the world at its harshest and worst, is by that very act to be unable to let something be done for you and in you that is more wonderful still. You see, the rich young ruler couldn't do it. He couldn't see that he had such need for absolute mercy This man saw his need, cast aside everything else to pursue it. It's interesting to note that Jesus asked the blind man the same question that he asked James and John. He says to him, what do you want me to do for you? James and John respond with the answer that's dripping with self-promotion and even assuming a sense of entitlement. We're your cousins, Jesus. You know what we want. The blind beggar doesn't have any sense of entitlement, no sense of deserving anything. He just knows of his own desperate need and he's crying out for mercy. And he becomes the example. And he's written down in Holy Scripture for all of us to read. Bartimaeus requests that he might be able to see and Jesus says, go, your faith has saved you. The word sozo here is translated save or heal. It means to make well of, but not in the either spiritual or physical sense alone, but in the complete sense of the, way, of the word. And so the same word is used in Mark 5.34 of the woman in the crowd. Your faith has saved you. Jesus is referring to this, this, this full reconciliation, full healing, salvation. And we read in Mark 10.52 that the moment this man received his sight, he followed Jesus down the road immediately. He didn't say, no, no, just, just hold on, Jesus. I've got to go back and get my cloak. He just... He immediately left it all, followed Jesus. He'd found everything he needed in him. And we're given to believe that he followed him all the way to Jerusalem. He probably was one that stood and watched the Lord Jesus be crucified on the cross. He was probably one who witnessed the resurrection. There was over 500. He was probably one that maybe even witnessed the ascension and was part of the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. He might have been one that was preaching on those days. He might have been one that was saying, let me tell you a story. Let me share my testimony. I once was blind, but now I see. That's the kind of testimony God has for all of us.